this morning I'm going to talk about my journey from Christian fundamentalism to eco-activism. And recently, why I've had my first two tattoos. And they're nothing to do with Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, <laughs> though I don't rule that out in the future. <clears throat> I was brought up in a fundamentalist church, and the worldview of Christian fundamentalism dominated the first half of my life. The way I thought about the earth then was that it was just a staging post on our way to heaven or hell, which were totally separate realms from this world. God was a distant patriarchal figure intervening on earth from his throne in heaven. I dedicated myself to saving souls. I went to Bible college when I was 21 and worked for an international organization called Operation Mobilization in my vocations. In the 1960s, OM was sending young people around the world to preach a message of eternal life in heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. Then for four years, I did missionary work in Italy because I thought Catholics needed to be saved. And subsequently was a pastor of charismatic house churches for 12 years. There was a separate track to my spiritual life. I had mystical experiences in nature and in practicing yoga. I was born one week before the end of the Second World War. In the 1940s, it was believed babies should have daily fresh air, regardless of the seasons, so I was put out in the garden in my pram. I have a very early memory of lying in my pram under a tree and of being tranced by the light, dappling through the leaves above me. We lived on the edge of fields in Surrey, and I loved running through them and feeling connected to nature. My first foreign holiday was to Switzerland. I remember being enchanted by the lakes, meadows, and mountains. In my mid-teens, I came across a book on yoga, and I realize now that I experienced a mystical spirituality as I practiced yoga postures and meditated, although I had no vocabulary to express or understand that. My belief system was that the body was just a temporary container for eternal soul. In my late 50s, my whole understanding of faith was transformed. I'd become increasingly disillusioned with the fundamentalist belief system of my younger years, and I'd left the pastorate and become an agnostic. I trained as a psychotherapist and had many years of a fulfilling second career. But after 10 years of having no Christian faith, I started reading books by Brian McLaren, who talked of a new kind of Christianity, by our own Dave Tomlinson, who called himself a post-evangelical. Eventually, after trying a couple of different churches, which did not feel right for us, 17 years ago, Hillary and I tracked down Dave, and we found ourselves here at St. Luke's. We began to experience a Christian faith that was open and inclusive. 
that allowed for uncertainty, that saw the Christian life as a journey, not a destination, and that valued the earth. We'd found our spiritual home. St. Luke's has been a wonderfully supportive community to us through some good times and also through some very difficult times. I began to think differently about God and the world. Instead of seeing God as separate from nature, I began to see the divine in nature. Now I experience spirit and matter as inseparably intertwined. The two spiritual tracks of my early life, the religious and the mystical, have come together. I no no longer think of God as a distant supreme being, occasionally intervening in this world. I experience her as everywhere in the universe. When I was working for Operation Mobilization in Italy, I remember sitting in our team's van on a hill, overlooking a valley when there was a spectacular electrical storm. I had the same sense of awe at the wonder of nature as I experienced as a boy. We began to sing that old hymn that goes, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. But then the hymn goes on to say, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and lead me home, What joy shall fill my heart? Home? A heavenly home was supposed to be my destiny. And yet, in the mystical experiences I had as a boy in the fields behind my house, and in Switzerland, I really felt at home. It was in the fields, lakes, and mountains that I experienced a sense of wonder and belonging. My religious beliefs and my spiritual experience were worlds apart. I realise now that I was close to my mystical experiences to indigenous religions and see the divine in all of creation. Only the last two decades of my life have I identified with indigenous peoples who experience trees, mountains, lakes, the sun and moon, the stars, animals, and even rocks as alive with spirit. I now feel one with all of creation. I walk in the woods most days and experience a connectedness with the trees and the birds singing in their branches, just as I did as a boy. These days I practice Hatha Yoga and meditate early every morning. The word yoga means to yoke. In the stillness of holding a pose, I experience my mind and body as one. Yoga means even more to me now than it did in my youth because I understand it as a spiritual practice. I regard my body as sacred. There's a growing understanding today that we are intimately interconnected with each other and with the living universe. George MacLeod, the founder of the modern-day Iona community, said, there is no such thing as dead matter. He believed that at the heart of the material is the spiritual. MacLeod's inspiration was Celtic spirituality. The Roman Empire pushed the Celts to fringes of the British Isles, to Scotland, Ireland, parts of Wales, the Isle of Man and Cornwall. Here Celtic Christians were not under the control of the Roman Church, 
to the same extent as elsewhere in Britain. They incorporated pagan nature mysticism into their Christianity. Often their monasteries were the sites of Druid shrines. I think the revival of interest today in Celtic and indigenous spirituality is a healthy reaction to the emphasis that has dominated much of Christian thinking, that we inhabit a fallen world in which the body and matter are opposed to spirit. This brings me to my first tattoo, and I'm going to show it to you. So, here it is. Oh. So who knows what that is? It's a Celt, it's a Celt, yes. Um, had that done a year or two years ago. Um, I wanted a permanent reminder on my body that spirituality and nature belong together. My accidental introduction to ecoactivism was in my mid-60s. I'd become radicalised by the Iraq war and been at the huge anti-war rally in February 2003. I became involved with peace issues and joined CND. My dear late son Pete had fired me up about social justice. So I was involved in the G20 protest in 2009 in London. During the day that I was there, I found myself in Bishopsgate, which had been occupied by group called Climate Camp. Suddenly about 1,000 people were kettled by the police, which meant police in full riot gear formed a cordon around non-violent demonstrators. No one was allowed through the police cordon. I was stuck there for seven hours with Climate Camp activists. There were workshops within the cordon, and it was there that I began to receive my education in green issues. I started to learn about pollution, climate breakdown and mass extinctions. I subsequently was involved in further protests and occupations with climate camp, including a week-long occupation of Trafalgar Square. I stood twice as a Green Party candidate in local council elections. But since my first involvement with climate camp in 2009, I've become increasingly concerned about the plight of our planet. With the realisation, if we don't take urgent action now, it may be too late. The result of human activity means that our climate, our planet, is heating so fast that we are close to unstoppable runaway climate change. Large areas of the earth will become uninhabitable in the lifetimes of our children. This will result in huge migrations on a scale that result in global turmoil and conflict. We are bombarded by almost daily reports of extreme weather, droughts, storms, floods, hurricanes, unprecedented heat waves and forest fires. If climate breakdown continues at present rate, we will witness sea level increases threatening large populations. In parts of the world, desertification will make large areas uninhabitable. We're already in the midst of the sixth mass extinction in Earth's history. Animal, insect, bird and fish populations are dropping at unprecedented levels through a combination of pollution, hot oceans, deforestation, 
loss of biodiversity and global warming. The United Nations report released this year states, human actions threaten more species with global extinction now than ever before. That report, which assessed the state of our planet's biodiversity, found that up to one million plant and animal species face extinction, many within decades due to human activity. In the UK, politicians are so, politicians are so preoccupied by Brexit that scant attention is paid to the infinitely more important issue of climate breakdown. Throughout the world, governments are not showing any signs of eating, meeting even their own unambitious targets to move to net zero greenhouse gas emissions. This brings me to my second tattoo, which I'll show you as well. <laughs> uh, who knows what that is? It is the, the green uh, classic Celtic interlacing knots that's, that's surrounding um, my tattoo. Um, and for me, that's quite important because it indelibly reminds me that mystical spirituality should not be separated from eco-activism. The two go together. The earth is sacred, and we should treasure it and defend it. Extinction Rebellion recognises that there is a climate emergency of catastrophic proportions, and that there's a very real possibility of civilizational collapse. Governments have to be pressured into urgent, radical reform. Action, not just reform. There is no sign of them taking this action. Individual lifestyle changes are important, as we heard earlier today, really important, um, but they're nowhere near enough. Without a speedy transformation to an ecological civilization, we face civilizational collapse. We are fighting the biggest ever threat to both the human race and to all of life on Earth. The peoples of the global south been suffering from results of climate breakdown already for many years. We now need a global extinction rebellion. Some are saying it is already too late, and we need to talk about adapting to the impending catastrophic impacts on civilization rather than focusing on trying to stop climate breakdown. The deep adaptation movement, as it is known, is growing. As many have been engaged in climate activism over many years are now convinced runaway climate change is irreversible and we have to prepare for the worst. What is certain is that we are living in an accelerating climate emergency. When I read, for instance, that whole parts of the Indian subcontinent could become uninhabitable because they will literally be too hot to sustain human life. And I think of the horrendous implications of that I sometimes fall into despair. I grieve for habitats and species that have already been lost. The parts of the world where there have already been irreparable consequences by fellow human beings and for our fellow sentient beings and flora. But I do not want to give up hope. I believe there are possible grounds for hope, especially as young people understand their futures are in jeopardy and have begun to take action. 
I've been inspired by Greta Thunberg, the 60-year-old climate activist who initiated the school climate strikes. During the Extinction Rebellion protests in London uh, in April, I was watching the news on a Saturday morning. A group of school children were being filmed protesting outside Heathrow Airport. They had a banner reading, Are We the Last Generation? Later that day, I recognised one of them that I'd seen on TV at the occupation of Oxford Circus. I asked her what had happened. She told me that the police had waited till the press had gone, then arrested them. As soon as she was released from the police station, she came straight back to join the protest. If we do our future, she and children like her are our best hope. Extinction Rebellion was formed by just a handful of activists in Stroud only last autumn. Had their first major protest, which I joined, in London last November. It has now gone global. The Glastonbury Festival. Recently, Extinction Rebellion joined forces with Greenpeace and other environmental groups to stage a procession of 2,000 people. This year, Glastonbury has gone plastic-free. I was in my mid-70s when I had my tattoos. Now, in the fourth quarter century of my life, mystical spirituality and eco-activism are inseparable for me. My own generation has caused huge damage to our planet. My hope lies for my granddaughter's generation. Both of them have been involved in the school, climate, school children's climate strikes, and they're here this morning in solidarity with me. And I'm very, very proud of, of Lola and Bella uh, and hundreds of thousands of children around the world who, on a Friday once a month, strike from school in order to protest. And that, that, they, are, they are the hope of the future. They are our hope. Um, if there is a hope, it lies with them. St. Luke's has always had an ecological concern. That is being taken forward by our church's support for Extinction Rebellion, by this series of talks. We recognise that this, this is no ordinary time. There's a new ecological awareness that brings hope. The Buddhist writer Joanna Macy has said this could be the time of the great turning. Thomas Berry talk to the great work. There is a growing appreciation that we are living in an interconnected world, not just with each other, but the whole world, the whole universe. There's also an increasing backlash against a more enlightened approach to caring for and healing the planet we have so badly damaged. For example, the climate denialism of Donald Trump, the leader of the world's most powerful nation. And Brazil's President Bolsonaro thinking that it's okay to cut down the Amazonian rainforest, exploit them for financial profit. But I think the biggest problem is apathy, not climate denialism. We are sleepwalking towards catastrophe. Governments measure success in terms of GDP rather than the health of the planet. Powerful multinational corporations are dependent on unsustainable growth to reward their shareholders and then give lip service to sustainability by engaging greenwashing public relations exercises. Shell has recently made a bizarre claim to have a green agenda. I've lost faith in marches and petitions. 
that have failed to bring about the radical changes we need. The time has come for global, mass, non-violent civil disobedience. We are facing the biggest threat in the history of humankind and our many kindred species. The planet will survive, we may not. I conclude with two quotes. The first is from Kurukindi, a Kichwa Amazonian shaman activist and part of the Wisdom Keepers, a group of indigenous leaders from around the world. He spoke at the Glastonbury Festival. He said, we love our friends, we love our children, and that love needs to extend to the planet that we are on and the earth beneath our feet. The second is the writer on Celtic spirituality, John Philip Newell, who for several years was the warden of the Iona community. He writes, We live in the midst of a unique moment. Thomas Berry calls it a moment of grace. It is a decisive moment in which we are being offered a new ancient way of seeing with which to transform the fragmentations of our lives and world back into relationship. But if we miss this moment, choosing instead to continue our patterns of wronging the earth and one another, there will be a degradation of life on this planet like none we have ever known. What will we choose? Which path will we follow? <laughs>